Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. This is episode XI, Tiberius the Reluctant Emperor. We last left Emperors of Rome with the death of Augustus, after a long and peaceful rule. His stepson Tiberius now becomes Emperor, but it mightn't have been a role that he was completely happy with. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Tiberius was the son of Livia and her first husband. Livia is going to be the second wife of Augustus. So he comes from a very aristocratic family, more aristocratic than Augustus's father, for instance. He therefore has a very good lineage, but the important thing is that he now has the connection to the imperial family when his mother marries Octavian, who becomes Augustus. We know of Tiberius as a great general. Is the benefit of this lineage that he was able to, uh, to get in the position to become a great general and that he'd be able to lead the troops? He certainly has the typical upbringing of a Roman aristocrat. And part of that is being, I guess, given that sense of superiority. But Tiberius does seem to have been naturally a good um, military figure. He, he had a good understanding of the military. And it's a combination of his, his very high birth and the fact that Augustus is there to place him in significant places to be with the army in Germany and in Pannonia, which is now Hungary, so that he gets that experience. He's kind of lucky on both sides. What sort of military engagements was he involved in? Well, when he was in the, the northern part of the empire, in Germany and in Pannonia, he's in quite a lot of danger. These are high-risk parts of the empire, and he's got to keep control of armies there and even though we can't exactly say that he's responsible for extending the empire, we know that he did keep a firm hand, that he managed to uh, maintain the boundaries. That was actually a very difficult thing to do in those areas because Rome never has a, a real German province. That that part of central Europe, northern central Europe, is very difficult for them. So he certainly kept a firm hand and he was there a long time. He's the best part of 22 years. He's just out there on these borders of empire, dealing with the daily kind of upheaval that would be going on. So he's very good at maintaining that. And it seems to be the case that Augustus wasn't particularly keen on pushing the boundaries of empire further anyway. He's more about consolidating, right? They've been through lots of upheaval in Rome with civil war, so he wants to just keep things steady. And in a way, what that means is that Tiberius was doing exactly what Augustus wanted him to. He wasn't looking for excessive personal glory. Yes, he made his name as a great military commander, but he can't claim, I've created a new province, which Augustus, by the way, can do, because, of course, as the conqueror of Antony and Cleopatra, especially Cleopatra, he has added Egypt to the Roman Empire even before he properly comes to power. And that's kind of the end of it. That's, that's the empire that Augustus consolidates. So Tiberius is doing what he's told to do. He's being a good, a good servant of Augustus when he goes out to the north. So when Tiberius is named the next emperor, he's later on in his years, he's got a military career behind him. He's 55 years old. 
there's definitely an impression of reluctance with how he took on the role. Can you can you tell me about that? Why was he so reluctant to become the next emperor? Well, I suppose quite controversial whether he was. It, it is a bit of a confusing situation. He's 55 when he becomes emperor, but Augustus has has clearly named him as successor 10 years before that. Still, that's middle age. He's, you know, he's a mature man. And he's only got there because, as I think I've mentioned elsewhere, all the other heirs, the direct heirs of Augustus, those of his bloodline have died off. And for CE, both his grandsons are dead. So he adopts Tiberius. Now, Tiberius had been in exile for a certain amount of time, self-imposed exile in Rhodes. He's come back from that. So it looks like things aren't entirely happy in the imperial family. When he then becomes emperor in 14 CE, there are stories that he didn't take it on willingly, or he took it on, but he didn't want all of the powers that Augustus had. And a lot of this comes from Tacitus, who is the great historian writing about a century later, whose work that we call the Annals. It starts off with this succession of Tiberius, starts with the death of Augustus. And he says, oh, you know, Tiberius was prevaricating. Tacitus doesn't like Tiberius. He calls him a hypocrite. He's just pretending he doesn't want power. He wants the Senate to beg him to take it on. But what we know of, of what went on in the 10 years before that really suggests something different because Tiberius had an enormous amount of power even during that time. So while he may not have been Augustus's first choice, it's fairly clear that Augustus trusted him once he was the option that was left. So there's discussion about, you know, would Tiberius take all the powers that Augustus had? Would the Senate offer them to him? Would he say Augustus was a one-off? I don't want all of those powers. But he already had, from 4 CE, he had Imperium, which is the supreme power of the Roman state. It's what the consuls had when they were alone, the chief magistrates, and, you know, there was no principate, there was no emperor. So he already has that. There's actually not much doubt that he will come along and take it and he will have all the power that Augustus had. So if Tiberius was reluctant, he had no reason to be because he knew what he was in for and he was already basically in that position. Why didn't the Senate take the opportunity to reassert themselves and, and get rid of the emperors? Well, there are actually times when it looks like that will happen, but the succession of Tiberius doesn't seem to be one of those. So later on in this series, we might talk about when Nero dies. Mm. And, you know, there is talk about, well, getting rid of the, the emperors and also with Caligula actually coming up a little bit sooner than that. But it's never quite clear whether what is actually being thought about is a real return to the Republic, because perhaps they just want somebody different to be in power. As time goes on, there's more and more of a vested interest in keeping the Principate going. There are people who are part of the, the imperial household. There's the Praetorian Guard, who's like the Emperor's bodyguard. You would think, though, that the transition from the first one Augustus to the second one, Tiberius, when it's it's not a system that is perhaps set in stone, mm. that it would arise there, but it doesn't seem to. The Senate is quite happy to continue with this system, apparently. Somebody like Tacitus is not very happy with this. 
Tacitus is writing at a time when there's no question at all that the Republic will return. He's writing in the second century CE, but he's incredibly conservative and he sort of would love to see that come back. And he says really sarcastic, cynical things like the Senate rushed into slavery. They desperately wanted to be slaves to Tiberius. They desperately wanted him to have power. As I say, that's a very cynical view, but what it probably indicates is that the Senate did not object. Tacitus would love them to object, but they don't. So what challenges face Tiberius as an emperor? He's emperor for 23 years Mm. until 37. He's got an empire that is, in a way, the reason that there's no great objection to him becoming emperor is that by and large there is peace and security, at least for the people who matter, who get to make these decisions. And he's, of course, had a part in making that. He's, he's played an important part, certainly in a military sense. And he's inherited an empire that's, that's quite happy with that system, at least on the face of it. The challenges that face him, one of them almost immediately is a mutiny amongst the German legions. Now, some people have thought that this actually was a mutiny against Tiberius, that they didn't want Tiberius. But the current thinking amongst ancient historians is more that they were dissatisfied with their pay and their conditions. And they just took this opportunity of the power shift as a time when they would raise this. Because the army has to swear an oath of allegiance to the emperor, to the princeps. Right. So they 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 withheld that? Exactly. They're using that as a bargaining tool to say, well, we're not going to swear allegiance to Tiberius unless you give us what we want. Again, that doesn't really show dissatisfaction with Tiberius, and it's pretty unlikely that the army would be dissatisfied with Tiberius because he's one of them, basically. Mm. So he doesn't really face enormous challenges in terms of dissatisfaction. I think the challenges he faces are, are ones he sort of makes for himself. He creates problems in a way because he's just not a very amenable character. He's not like Augustus. He's not somebody who can win people over. He seems to be hard to read. He's just not a very easy person to be around. And he also doesn't really do for the people what Augustus did. He ignores them in a sense. He doesn't put on games for them. He doesn't show concern for them, which would have kept the populace happy. So it's always important for an emperor to put his mind towards who's going to rule after him. So who does he seem to be shoring up or favouring at this point to be the next emperor? Tiberius has quite a few choices because there are two families being brought together now. We're talking about the Julio-Claudian dynasty now, and we're going to have four Julio-Claudian emperors. Augustus is not a Julio-Claudian emperor because he's just from the Julian family. It's Livia's, or Livia's husband, her first husband, who brings in the Claudian bit. So Tiberius is the first Julio-Claudian emperor. And from the Claudian side of the family, from his, his own side, really, the side he's not adopted into, he's got various choices. The family tree gets quite complicated at this point because members of the Julian side and the Claudian side start marrying each other. So they become kind of even more of a spider web of Julian and Claudian. But basically, Tiberius has a son by his first wife, Vipsania, called Drusus. And he's also got a nephew called Germanicus. So he's got two young men who are growing up in the imperial household 
who look like a sure bet for the succession. His nephew, Germanicus, is the son of Tiberius' brother, who's also called Drusus. And he is kind of the golden boy of Rome. Not only is he the grandson of Livia, but he's also related to Augustus because his mother, Agrippina, is the daughter of Julia, who was the <laughs> daughter of Augustus. And you know what? The reason she's called Agrippina is because she's the daughter of Julia and Agrippa. I can see what you mean by a web here. Yes. Germanicus is the person who's sent to deal with the disgruntled troops in Germany. So does this establish his credentials early on? It does. It means that he's somebody that Tiberius trusts to go and do this job. From the evidence we've got, he doesn't actually manage to bring about a settlement by diplomacy. In fact, they ended up having to use force to bring this uprising to an end. And again, one of our main sources for this is Tacitus. We have to always remember how cynical he is. He kind of represents this as a bit of a failure on Germanicus's part and on Tiberius's part too, I guess. He did it by getting them to go and pretty much sack and conquer other territory and go, right, that's your bonus, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and, but various promises were made and then withdrawn later. Yeah. You know, it, it, was, it was a fairly dodgy deal. But still good enough for a triumph. Yeah, exactly. You have to say at this point that the triumph has been sort of usurped by the imperial family. In fact, the opportunities for glory are given to members of the imperial family. So they've sort of got it rigged all along the line. Nevertheless, the fact that he's allowed a triumph by Tiberius is a sign that he is, he's sort of seen in a glowing light, at mm. least at this point early on. So what happened to Germanicus? Why wasn't he the emperor after Tiberius? Germanicus dies out in the east. And again, he's been sent out east because that is where you send the designated successor. All right, so he's given responsibility there and that means that this is all sort of playing out as it should. He will be the next one along. Now, we're not sure how Germanicus died. There was a suggestion made that the man who'd been sent out with him, who's called Piso, had murdered him. Certainly, Germanicus and Piso fell out and Piso had to leave the province. Once the suggestion was made, Tiberius had to put him on trial and he was executed. He had to kill himself. So he may have been murdered. He may have got an infection and died. We don't know. So that takes him out of the running for succession. What about Drusus? Drusus also dies before Tiberius. So a lot of bad luck in the Julio-Claudian family in that the young promising men often die before the emperor. Was that suspicious circumstances as well? It's always, it's always seen as suspicious at this point. There was a story that Drusus was killed by his wife. His wife is called Livilla, and she is the sister of Germanicus. You can see how enmeshed this family is becoming. So his cousin. Yes. All right. Livilla was having an affair with Sejanus, who was the Praetorian prefect, the head of the Praetorian guard. This wasn't realized until later, but kind of in retrospect, there was the story made that the reason that she got rid of Drusus is because she was a loose woman and she was looking elsewhere. Okay, so he's lost his son and his nephew, the two that he was grooming to be emperor after him. So what sort of effect did this have on Tiberius? Well, eventually he'll look towards other successors. 
But during this period, he kind of falls out of love with Rome, if he ever had any love for it. And in 26 BC, he leaves Rome, never to return. So it's another 11 years that he's emperor and he doesn't come back to Rome. He goes off to the lovely island of Capri in southern Italy, just off the Bay of Naples, and has a palace built there, which you can still see the ruins of, and which is called the Villa Iois, or the Villa of Jupiter. And he just lives out his life in luxurious exile there. He's kind of the government in absentia. So he basically removes himself from Rome. He doesn't relinquish power, but he's not going to be at the heart of it anymore. And it's one of the reasons he becomes deeply unpopular. None of the Romans in the city of Rome want to think that he can't be bothered with them anymore. And that's basically the message he's given. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and leave us a review there because reviews help our rankings. You can follow both Rhiannon and myself on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans and I'm at Nightlight Guy. You should also stop by and say hi on Facebook. We're going to get a discussion going there about Tiberius and I've put up some pictures of his palace in Capri. Even though it's ruins, it's still pretty impressive looking. Listen out for the next episode of Emperors of Rome, in which we discuss the seclusiveness of Tiberius and the sneaky plot of Sejanus. Until then, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.